Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Is there a fourth wall in radio? In podcasting? (laughs) Hang on. Mr. Marconi? Yes, there's a fourth wall. He says there is a fourth wall, so shut up. Uh, So uh, also there was a giant update to Google+, and so you know what that means. That means one more person might be using it now. (laughs) Oh, man, you must be sitting there. I was late tonight. I know that you were sitting there writing a script. Oh, yes. For this show. That was a a witty retort. No, Andy. What it means is that uh, I have once again started playing with Google+, and I'm still not posting our shows, but I did turn on a community for the next reel. I haven't made it public. You have to ask to be invited. Oh. So believe me, you're going to probably not get an invite because you're such <laughs> a buzzkill. That's awesome. You have other duties. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so there is, there is, a, would anybody even care about a Google Plus community? Does anybody use it? There are people, the movies, like the flick chart guys, they they have a giant community over on, on Google Plus. Really? So, yes. I wonder if they're the same people who use it on uh, Facebook or if they're two separate communities. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just uh, a lot of uh, different people. Wow. I don't know. They keep trying, don't they? They do. Yeah. They, you know, when you're a plucky upstart like Google. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You're working like a startup. You don't have the resources to really pour into it. You've got to just do what you can. Pull all nighters. Plucky upstart. Ah, uh, yes. Do we have anything else to say? Do we have any? I think we do. We've got a couple of blot spots. We do have a couple of blot spots. All right, yes, you do we one, do. You do one, I'll do the other. Which one do you want? I'll take Totoro. Okay. Well, then I should go first. Go first. All right. This is uh, this is our dear friend of the show, Ben Lott. Uh, on the blot spot, he's writing in about Spectre, which we did, obviously, as a, uh, as a film board episode. The Gang of Thugs gathered to talk about the latest Bond film, Bond 24. Uh, and uh, Ben writes, I cannot believe none of you guys mentioned how all caps boring this movie was. Spectre was so disappointing and was easily Daniel Craig's worst Bond film. Every single aspect of the aspect, aspect one of you said you liked. I was screaming at my phone saying, how could you like that? I've always wanted to share my two cents on the show, but I've never wished more that I could jump into the conversation than in this episode of the film board. I don't hate Spectre because it's Bond and I'm a Bond enthusiast, but I was absolutely let down. Wow. wow. Let me tell you this. The reason, and I don't want to speak for anybody else, I, this, I, I, I apologize in advance, Ben. I actually like the movie more today than I did when I saw it. It has aged well on me. I did not think it was boring. The things that I was frustrated about, I was really frustrated about. I'm still frustrated about those things, but I did not think it was boring uh, and I don't think it was, uh, it was, might've been at the bottom of my list of Daniel Craig films, but, um, that doesn't mean that I hated it at all. Yeah. I, uh, I, I agree that it was the worst of, uh, Daniel Craig's films. I think Ben, you and I are, are two of the quantum of solace, 
lovers. So, um, but I mean, I did enjoy the film. Um, I'm curious to see how it will be on rewatches. Um, so agree, yeah, maybe yeah. I just didn't pick up on, on the boringness of it. It's like, you know, films like Thunderball. I, I mean, it's still a great film, but man, just watching the underwater fight, I just, that's like, that is like a boring bond moment for me. I get yeah, just yeah. so tedious. Um, so I'm curious to see how this one plays out. Cause I have a feeling everything in the desert base is going to end up just being in that boring, uh, boring bit. And so I'm curious, I'm curious to see how this one ends up holding up over time for me. Uh, blot spot for Totoro. I struggled with my neighbor Totoro because it's an adorable little film with sweet characters that I grew attached to, but nothing really happens to them. I kept waiting for the plot to kick in, but it was just a series of moments that didn't flow in any natural way. I'm just partial to a traditional narrative. I feel like I'm missing something and perhaps it's merely the fact that I don't have a child's eyes to watch it through your rank 42 out of 210, my rank 132 out of 210. I'd be interested to hear how you guys chose these three films to represent Miyazaki because a friend insists that Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away would be better options for me to watch first in order to acclimate to Miyazaki. Not that your selections should be framed for introducing a new viewer to the genre each time. I'm just curious. Well, say so yeah, now you have to respond to that. How did we uh, pick these three? Well, I think we, I, I, Lupin, we ended up adding kind of at the last minute, replacing a different one. I can't remember which one we had before. And I think it was really just, we thought it would be interesting to start at the beginning of his career and the end of his career, and then pick one in the middle. And Totoro was one that was just kind of always on the list. And so that's the one that we ended up sticking with. But yes, um, Mononoke, Spirited Away, definitely films worth talking about. I, I don't know about you, Pete, but I would love to come back to Miyazaki at another time and do some more of his films. So, Absolutely. I, mean, I, I think that's if I've learned anything from this brief series that, that I think that um, uh, that is the lesson. I would love to finish it out. And, and it's so great that he's retired. Whew, we can actually catch up. Yes, right. We don't have to keep adding new episodes over time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Should we tell the people where we're from? Where are we from? is the next reel on rashpixel.fm everybody i'm pete wright and that over there is andy nelson hi ho and we <laughs> spoil movies tonight on the show the final in our series the films of hayo miyazaki and his final film the wind rises before we get into that you should learn more about us at the subscribe to the show on itunes or follow us on twitter and facebook at the next reel and if you agree with us that the best romance is a romance set up by Werner Herzog, you'd better hit, hit up the next reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. That's right. And this week, uh, poor Stephen Smart is feeling a little under the weather. So that's okay, because Kendra Midmod83 hit it out of the park with the second image of the Sandlot. She uh, was able to nail that image, figured out right away what it was, and now Kendra Midmod83 is entered to win the 2015 Pony Prize. Now, I think if I'm not mistaken, Kendra Midmott is, is a, a repeat victor. I think that she is. Oh, well done. Well yes, done, indeed. and thank you for playing. Absolutely. Now, shall we do some trailers? Let's do them. Let me tell you, uh, I am doing <laughs> uh, Gods of Egypt. Had you, oh, had you yes. even heard of this film before I recommended the trailer this evening? 
Yes, somebody else actually. <laughs> another somebody friend, else? A, another friend posted the trailer uh, with some comments about what has happened to Alex Proyas, and so I had seen the trailer uh, yesterday or the day before. What has happened to Alex Proyas? And what has happened to Alex Proyas? He has gone downhill since knowing. I would like to add to that list, what has happened to Gerard Butler? Even Gerard Butler. Right. And I have seen nothing else that Nikolai Kostrovaldau has done besides Game of Thrones. And I'm even willing to say, what has happened to Nikolai Kostrovaldau in God's no Egypt? Kidding. Uh, this is a, a very simple premise. A common thief joins a mythical god on a quest through Egypt. Now, I recommend this trailer because even though I lampoon it a little bit, tomorrow is my birthday. And as you will know, as you may remember, uh, my birthday is a national holiday, as is Andy's. And what we do when our birthdays come around is we go see movies all day. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Hells to the yeah. Yes. And so tomorrow is movie day. Now, obviously, Gods of Egypt is not going to be playing tomorrow. But if it was playing tomorrow i would be seeing it because birthday movie day is made for gods of egypt i just want you to remember immortals was one of the movies that you saw on your birthday movie day i did try to remember what you thought of immortals it wasn't good but i enjoyed that it was that i was seeing it on my birthday because it's like it's like a it's it's like a freebie it's like it doesn't count do you know what I'm saying? It, when you go see movies on your birthday, you get to, it's like you never saw it at all. It's like your taste. You're, it's a taste vacation. It's like Skittles <laughs> for your brain. It's like calories you eat on your birthday, right? Same yeah, thing. Yeah, don't count. It's like that free Starbucks that they send you. I always really? get the thing. You know, are you a member of, do you have a gold no, card? No, I'm not. Oh, I got to be a member, Andy, I guess. Oh, God, see, now we don't speak the same language. When you have a gold card, they send you a free drink, any drink you want. So if you buy normal cheap, cheap drinks, I say that in quotes, uh, every day to earn your regular free drinks, on this day, you get to drink the most expensive drink ever at the Starbucks, and it doesn't count. That's Gods of Egypt. This movie looks terrible. Gerard Butler plays Set. Brendan Thwaites plays Beck. Nikolai Kostervaldau plays Horus, uh, and, uh, you know, it really wouldn't be complete if he didn't end up in an eye patch. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He's always missing something. <laughs> How did he get? Listen to this. How did he get this? Gerard Butler, uh, Nikolai, Courtney and Abby Lee, Jeffrey Rush, Rufus Sewell, uh, Chadwick Boseman. Chadwick Boseman. I know. These are all people we like. <sighs> I, you know... It, I'll, I'll be honest. This looks terrible, but it is exactly the sort of movie that I would put on late at night <laughs> and I would watch and I would not be able to fall asleep because it's like that bad entertaining. And I would probably watch this and go, yep, that was bad. But yep. I was entertained for two hours. It's big and loud and lots of shiny. It is 300. It is Clash of the Titans and Wrath of the Titans. That is, that's what it is. And Immortals. And, immor <laughs> and Immortals. Yes, it is all of the above. There you go. What's yours? Well, mine oddly also highlights a character's eyes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know it's even as what if, to make of this. It's as if mine is uh, is uh, Nikolai Coster Waldau's character, uh, you know, centuries later, reincarnated in a young boy. As a boy, yeah, that's right. Mine is Midnight Special, Jeff Nichols' new film. This one I really don't know what to make of, but 
you know, Jeff Nichols, I I think that he's kind of been, uh, you know, pretty good so far. I mean, Shotgun Stories wasn't my favorite, but Take Shelter, Mud, liked those quite a bit. This is next on his roster, and this is the story of... Uh, this is the story of a father and son who go on the run after the dad learns his child possesses special powers. And it has something to do with his eyes. And the son goes around wearing like uh, swimming goggles all the time. And when he takes them off, his eyes glow blue and look like uh, the gods of Egypt character's <laughs> eyes. Really strange. Uh, Joel Edgerton, Kirsten Dunst, Adam Driver, Michael Shannon, of course. He's a regular in uh, in Jeff's movies. And... Uh, uh, Sam Shepard, and uh, it's it, it's just a great cast of characters here, and I just don't know what to make of the story. It looks kind of like one of these typical stories where these characters end up with um, another character who has this special power. The government wants that character because of the special power, and these people go on the run trying to protect that character. This looks like that sort of film. Um, I don't know what to make of it, but I, I'm, it really piques my curiosity. This looks like something I would have loved in the 80s when I was growing up, and, um, and I hope it feels that way. I hope it ends up being that sort of film because it looks that way, and I want it to be that. So Midnight Special, uh, what did you think of it? I, you know, I liked it. I didn't know what to make of it. I thought it was, a, uh, I thought it was not the movie that it ended up being uh, as, as, <laughs> when the trailer began compared to when it ended. Um, I, I didn't expect the, uh, the whole Cyclops thing um I, I thought it was more i thought it was more a la prisoners than uh ah. than you know a, a superhero right, right, right. story uh but it and it ended up looking really interesting it looked at it like it had a lot of heart so um i'm i'm fascinated by it and of course i will be there yeah march 18th 2016 that's when this one opens i will be there too so uh we'll see how it is i'll see you there sounds good andy i hope you youngsters appreciate extruded aluminum alloy The wind rises, Andy. Yes, it does. This is 2000. It was technically two, really 2014. Who are we kidding? Well, here it was. Yeah. If that's this what you're implying. It's 2013. Uh, 2013 in Japan and in L.A. for a week. Right. The awards release. Yeah. But uh, otherwise, it was a, a 2000, uh, 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 2014 wide release, uh, The Wind Rises, uh, from uh, uh, Hayao Miyazaki, his final film upon retirement. It's, it's, yeah, it's a little confusing. The book, The Wind Has Risen, is really uh, by Hori Tatsuo, is uh, a book about a, a woman who is, uh, has tuberculosis and is in a sanatorium. And that's really kind of what the book is about. He pulled a lot of the relationship story that uh, that we see in this film of Jiro and his relationship with Naoko. He really pulled kind of that element of that fictional story and put it into that put that fictional story into this uh, story and basically created this whole fictionalized element of uh, Jiro Horikoshi's life. Um, what he did with the manga uh, is really kind of more based on um, 
the the actual well this is my understanding it's more based on the actual jiro and his his work to develop these different planes um early in uh in the development of air power for japan for japan right right right. and so he created this manga which was originally published in some airplane magazines and um and that wasn't necessarily tied to the wind has risen so much um and then what he did when he ended up making this film, he kind of ended up blending those two stories together. And so he uh, he kind of created this this biopic with a, a very fictional element going through it. But the manga, um, which that's uh, we can put that in the show notes also. It's only available in Japanese right now, and you can only I can only find it on Amazon, the uh, Japanese Amazon. Um, but it uh, it looks like the whole thing. It's it's interesting for anyone who's familiar with Miyazaki's films. Porco Rosso was a, a film that he made with a pilot who is basically, uh, um, what is it? What do you call it? Porce, porcine? Yeah, like a pig-like character. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jiro is very porcine as well. He's got a little pig nose and everything, and. People were saying, you know, the, what what is he saying with that? But I guess Miyazaki often draws his characters, like he draws his self-portraits often with a pig nose. And I don't know if he just likes it that way or what. But anyway, Jiro, through this, is kind of that pig-nosed sort of character, which is kind of funny. But anyway, he creates very interesting looks for these characters yeah, yeah. that aren't necessarily human. And so, so yeah, he blended, um, long story short, he, he kind of blended those those different stories to create the script for The Wind Rises. Fascinating. You've already taught me something. That's what I'm here for. Uh, well done. So so anyhow, the result is this look at the life of Jiro Horikoshi, the man who designed Japanese fighter planes during World War II. Uh, it is... It's funny to watch this film after watching the last two, and I think it, it mostly because it feels very much visually like we, we really have pulled the uh, the Lupin leap through time. Um, you know, j- big giant leap from one building to another. You know, we land, we <laughs> leap from there, and we land on Totoro, and now we leap from there and land here. And you can see, uh, I, I think, in uh, the the great contrast uh, or evolution of of the art of his his. It's definitely a Miyazaki film, uh, and yet to me, visually, it it's a masterstroke. I mean, it it feels so much like uh, it capitalizes on everything he's learned. Um, and, and I will just get it out at the outset for me, I think of the three, uh, this was my favorite to watch as much as I've, I've always loved Totoro. I mean, this, this was, uh, I, I was deeply, um, moved by this film and, uh, and I was fascinated watching it with my kids. The first thing out of my daughter's mouth after it was, that was definitely my favorite of the three. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Very my son, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's funny because my kids actually uh, did a pretty good job watching it. Um, I just don't know if they really got it or yeah. really understood what it was they were watching. Yeah. Um, so that was very funny. Um, I, I think it's just easier for them to watch an animated film and just kind of move along with it. Um, when it's kind of an adult story and so they were they they tapped into it and you know my son really taps into like the dreams and that element of it like that's something that he always. Uh, gets excited about in movies where you see kind of the story and then you you see the dreams that there's something that really i think that he really connects to the dream world still 
And so he really connected to that in this film. I still don't think he got it really. Well, and this um, is an interesting film because the 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 uh, transition between dream and and film timeline are are can be pretty subtle, uh, or in some cases a little bit blurred. Um, you know, it, with some of the big visual elements that happen in in Waking Life, um, th- that look very dreamlike. Um, so I, I even found myself thinking, you know, I, I love the dream sequences, but I'm not entirely sure where we're dreaming. Yeah, it was, it was interesting seeing, seeing that blend. Um, and you know, this it, it is a very interesting film. It, in, uh, Miyazaki's body of work, it doesn't feel as directly connected to many of his stories. Like you don't see as much of the, the kind of quirky characters and things like that, um, to really kind of. Um, have that sense of his world. Mm-hmm. However, um, well, except for like at the beginning in the very first dream sequence with very young uh, Jiro when he's dreaming and he has that uh, instance with his eyes where he's realizing that he's nearsighted and can't fly. And he has that, you know, the dream of that dark, uh, you know, uh, Zeppelin flying over with all the little, I don't know, Zeppelin vehicles hanging off of it with black, kind of freaky figures those were the nazi, you know, that's, the nazi hooligans that's the most um uh, well nazi hooligans yes but uh, <laughs> in the uh, as when he was a kid he was uh you know how old was he as a child Awfully yeah i mean young. he was probably 13 14 yeah which would have been you know 1915 so i, yeah. I can't imagine it was the nazis no 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 i'm just i just like yes to you're just you just like Warner Herzog. there you go <laughs> but it was um that's really the only time you see that sort of character. Outside of that, it really is the dream sequences that kind of make it feel a little more Miyazaki-ish. The way that he kind of blends the dream world uh, with kind of the real world. And I like that quite a bit. And there's a lot of nature, too, and a lot of a lot of that sort of stuff. And, you know, he himself is a pacifist. And so I think of a lot of his own philosophies and everything come through in this film more so than perhaps some of the... Um, the fantastical elements that he has put forth in so many of his other films. Well, that does get to an interesting point too, right? And that's that's part of the controversy of the film that I definitely want to talk to uh, talk about later. That, that his role as a pacifist and uh, and the controversy that sort of erupted as a result of him um, making this film and and what is the message of this film and uh, you know what foundation what is the foundation on which he stands to make it? Um, it's an interesting film because it doesn't. I, I mean, it is the, you know, the as you say that it's the most uh dreamlike it's the most miyazaki when it's in dreamland uh it is it doesn't involve magic it is it is the most i think even in spite of some of the 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 dream stuff it's definitely the most grounded uh of his films it is the most uh uh straightforward narrative uh, it's a it's the the film that tells us it's a biopic. It's a fictionalized uh, biopic of of this guy who makes like hinges and stuff and designs planes. Um, and yet, moving through this narrative, as we see him design the fantastic canvas and wood structures, as we see him testing his planes, as we see him dealing with the trials and the massive failures of as his planes, you know end up crashing and burning and and uh failing time and time again i found myself really moved when we finally see the zero when we finally see this iconic shape and we're introduced to this shape in a number of different it's sort of teased out in a number of different ways uh the most successful first flight for me is this 
beautiful, sweet, sweet sequence of a zero as a paper airplane, one of the early um, uh, drafts of the sequence. I think it's one of the most romantic sequences in the film uh, as we see him flying, uh, Jiro flying this this paper airplane uh, below uh, the balcony of his um, his girlfriend at the time, mm-hmm. I think, Naoko. Right. And you end up with this just, it's just the sweetest little piece. There's a bit of slapstick. There's a lot of falling into the bushes and him wearing the lady's hat. And they don't speak to one another. They're spending time trying to hide from dad. And and it, it ends up being a, a sweet, clumsy thing. And yet, what we know as an audience uh, is that they are introducing uh, in in here the shape of an iconic war machine. And I found that brilliant storytelling yeah it's it's a very interesting um way to tell this story and to kind of develop this and uh, it's you know we've we've kind of gone on about this with biopics before but it's like the balance of when do you stay true to the story that you're telling uh, of the actual historical person and when do you fictionalize and this is um this is quite fictionalized and all of the stuff with naoko is completely fictionalized which is which is quite interesting and you know unless you know that like there's nothing in this film that's saying oh but a lot of this is fiction so it's um you know it's one of those things with these biopics it's like where where is that line it's so hard to say it's funny that That, you say that though i give this i like i treat this film uh, about as a true a historical document as i treat this you know a, a roll of toilet paper Right. I mean, this is this is a story about this iconic um, kind of vision of uh, a man who and and his view of of art and and not the true story of the developer of these planes. Right. But would you know that it's not the true story of the developer of these planes? Well, and I guess I guess that's a thing like is is because the film is animated does that already kind of pull you away right. from the true story that was, and let uh, you kind of take a more fanciful look at that was absolutely going to be my comment that that i think it it already is free from the bounds uh the bonds of of that requirement of of sort of uh, i i don't know if it would be some sort of a reveal or a title card or something that says most of this is not true right. uh, but but you know i don't think it had to because i i mean it's a uh, it it's it, it's like an impressionist painting i mean it's just here it is we're we're giving you a sense of of our experience uh of of this sort of sense memory of this figure and because it's animated uh we don't feel the the requirement for that level of of uh disclosure yeah it's it's a tricky thing like i, I you know I, I don't know if there's ever really an answer and we i, I don't think we've ever come to a, a real conclusion on this you know, like where when is there a definitive line when you're making a biopic of when you can fictionalize and when you can't um i i really enjoy this and i agree this this feels you know it almost feels like it has a touch of kind of that kurosawa's dreams sort of element to it where you have the, these real, um, these beautiful dreams that really kind of take you into Jiro's head as as he's kind of internalizing this this idea of designing these perfect planes because a you know a plane in and of itself should be a thing of absolute beauty and and the way that they can glide through the air and just kind of cut through the clouds it's it's just stunning to watch balanced with the harsh realities of the difficulties of actually making them work 
paired with what they ultimately end up getting used for in, in, in such destructive ways during World War II. It's, and there, it's and a, there, yeah, there are two elements to that, too, which I found really interesting. The one is there's the contribution of the plane to the economic model of Japan, which was really struggling. And there was and there is, too, the contribution of the plane to the war effort. And, and those are two, I think, um, you know, uh, different things to think about. Right. Yeah. Right. There's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that he's putting in here. I mean, he really is is giving you a lot of meat to chew on as you watch this film. And I do really like it. I found that I like it more each time I watch it. I still put Totoro on top. Um, I just feel Totoro is just uh, just really kind of a, a perfect animated film. This one I I find myself really enjoying, and um, I, I'm glad that I've watched it several times now. This was my first time watching the English dub, um, which was interesting to hear. Uh, you know, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, and the you know, all these other Americans speaking these roles. I had just for this one, I had to actually gotten used to kind of hearing the Japanese voices because was it, how it, jarring, it was all, yeah, how jarring. It, was that it was all well because it was also recent this film is such a recent film yeah. that i had seen the japanese several times and seeing these guys do it I, you know i guess it was fine um i thought they did a great job i mean i know it's in, incredibly difficult doing these dubs where you have to kind of take these this these english translations and then kind of try to work them to fit the mouth movements movements that have already been animated which um I think for the most part works pretty well. Um, and actually, I mean, I, I feel like these guys did a great job. I mean, Joseph Gordon-Levitt does a great job as Jiro, John Krasinski as Honjo, uh, Emily Blunt, Martin Short, Stanley Tucci, Mandy Patinkin, uh, Werner Herzog is great to be in there. Uh, actually, he's my favorite just because I think he was a perfect casting choice. How, uh, did, for Castor. He, how yeah. did, did he get involved with it? Tell me there is some story. That's I I could not find a, a, how did Werner Herzog end up doing the voice to this character, but uh, there's got to be something. It's these, you know, he's just got that voice. I mean, oh, yeah. it, if you listen to any of his uh, recent documentaries, when he speaks, it just sounds so perfectly exactly what that character needed to be. <laughs> it's like God, he's just so right for that. Is so funny, I and know. it's just like, <laughs> but it's so funny because it's such a, a funny. Um, comparison going from this character who is just so uh pleasing and kind to uh jack Re- uh, jack reacher when he's the zek <laughs> and he's just like diabolical in that film uh, it's great he i he is he's so goofy in this film and uh i still found myself i mean i just i'm i was riveted uh and he's a matchmaker the matchmaker Werner herzog that's right that was so good Yes, it was. Uh, anyhow, uh, so that was a treat. So it, this was one because, again, I've never seen the Japanese. Uh, this was one where I thought, this is, this is a, a, first of all, it's an A-list cast. And how funny would it be? This is, I, I want to see a, a, a live action <laughs> remake of this movie with these people in it. Uh, <laughs> I just want to see Martin Short, uh, you know, riding around on the back of a little bike. I think that would be really fun. <laughs> uh, uh, but it, it's uh, i thought the performances were actually terrific i and and some of them uh some of them were were you know beyond terrific emily blunt who i have become a huge fan of since edge of tomorrow now i you know i think she is just terrific versatile actress uh and and uh, have loved kind of exploring more of her catalog she uh 
um, I think plays a just a beautiful, sweet, sensitive um, uh, voice to this thing. And I mean, you can, you, I just really felt the character just she just makes it makes her just leap off stage or off the screen um uh, particularly as she as she sort of deteriorates uh through as tuberculosis kind of wreaks havoc on havoc on her um i i loved it i loved her accent i thought it was um i thought it was just really impeccable across the board yeah, no, she does a great job in this. John Krasinski was great too. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was interesting because I've I have read some reviews that were uh, that were not uh, kind to his portrayal of Jiro. I actually thought he was great. Uh, the main criticism is that it was um, it lacked charisma or character. Huh. But in fact, that is one of the things that I think he really did a fantastic job doing. He he made this character, um, uh, I think, appropriately subdued. Uh, do, you, yes. do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. That's that's a good way to describe it. It, it feels like somebody who's, um, I, I feel like he's thinking a lot, you know, I, and yes. I, I feel like that really came through the way that uh, Joe Galay played it. And when did that happen? I don't I know. I always thought it was JGL. I like Joe Galay. It, it It rolls off the tongue a lot easier. Oh, it sure does. But it makes me think, feel like you should. I, I should follow that with words like Peloton. It makes me feel like I should spray some on before I go out to a party. <laughs> you should. You should spray on your Joe Galay. Yes. <laughs> or, or it's yogurt that you would suck from some sort of a some sort of a stick or a tube. <laughs> Have you had your Joe Galay? Billy, come get your Joe Galay. Yogole. <laughs> oh, there's a tangent for you. Good. Well done. Yes, indeed. Uh, That's I what I'm John, here for. I love John Krasinski. Uh, obviously, John Krasinski was the lovable guy, one of the many lovable guys from The Office and, and other uh, great uh, performances. I think he is uh, a fun guy to watch. Uh, and uh, his performance as Honjo, it, which is, you know, he was a good, uh, he was a good friend. Uh, and and I, I think the character was, was portrayed well in the film. Because uh, as we watch the film, and this is, I, I think I came out with this in, during Totoro, where, um, you know, when we talked about the drowning girl, how I expected something awful to happen because that's who I am and that's how I've been sort of enculturated. I expected there to be a betrayal of Hanjo, uh, uh, is that he would betray Jiro in the process. And I knew it was coming. I was convinced it was coming. Uh, and then the opportunity came when they saw his, his initial design of his bomber, Hanjo's bomber. And, and he's, and, and Jiro said, well, I, I couldn't get this design into my plane, uh, but maybe it would fit well in yours. It was a redesign of the, of the screws and the, 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 the hatch for, for the access ports on the wings. And, and I, I expected Honjo to to say no. I'm not going to do it, and then to do it anyway and betray his friend and take all the credit. <laughs> but he didn't do it. It was such a sweet, uh, sweet. Of course he wouldn't do it. Of course it's a Miyazaki film. There is no betrayal like that. That just doesn't happen. Uh, and and it, it ended up being just the sweet reward of, yeah, man, I'm not going to do this because it needs to go on your plane first. It's I'll use it on my next design, but the first time it's used needs to be on on your plane. And and that is, uh, you know, I would do that for you, Andy. Ditto, Same. man. <laughs> anyway, the, I love the way that character was written. It ended up fitting just perfectly what I needed to see, even if it isn't what I expected. That's right. That's right. And, you know, we should say uh, Hideaki Anno did uh, Jiro in the Japanese version. 
and he's uh he's the interesting thing about him is he is himself a uh, a director and animator also in addition to being an actor and actually he is best known for his part in creating uh the anime series Neon Genesis Evangelion. Oh, I know that. Yeah. So that's kind of uh, more what he's well known for. Although, interestingly, he had actually worked with Miyazaki back in Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind back in 84 when they needed an animator. And so he came on board to kind of help with um, and, and, you know, he was pretty young at the time. And he came on to help with uh, some of the uh, the big complicated scenes at the end. And so that kind of helped kind of really give him a start and got him going. And, uh, yeah, that spurred on uh, Evangelion, and then from there he kind of went on. But um, he's, yeah, done a lot of directing and, and writing, and uh, aside from animating things, and then doing uh, some voice acting. Um, and he's been doing voice acting off and on since uh, since the uh, 80s. So he's kind, of, uh, he's kind of all over the place. But, yeah, um, I remember liking him quite a bit as Jiro also. I, and, you know, now that I've seen... Um, Jogale's performance, I, I almost want to go back to Hideaki's performance and look at it and see if it also had kind of that that same read that we were just talking about, where it kind of had that sense of... introspective. Exactly, bit, yeah. exactly. Um, who else really stood out to you from the uh, by comparison? Since I haven't seen the Japanese, you know, who else really gets you? Because you know, there are some uh, obviously some names that really jump out at me. Jun Kunimura uh, leapt right out at me as the voice of Hattori, who has has been in a lot of stuff that uh, that we know him for. But who else? Uh, who else did you find was a real highlight in the Japanese performance? You know, I wish I could remember um, more specifically. It's just uh, you know because I had seen this one, it, it's like gosh, I can't remember, uh, and so. I I almost I really want to go back and kind of rewatch them um just to kind of uh just to kind of get that uh yeah. get that voice back in my head. Um but uh, I I do remember liking the voices in that film. Amiori um, Takamoto did uh, the voice of Naoko, Hidetoshi Nishijima did Kiro uh Hanjo and uh I, I, they were all great. Um interestingly Stephen Alpert did the voice of Castor who um was the uh is the uh, fun little Werner Herzog character. And he's actually an American who came on to play that German character. And he was actually on the board of directors for Studio Ghibli. And um, he had actually worked for uh, Walt Disney Studios. And when this film came out, I guess they had kind of asked him to do this voice. And it was the first time he had ever actually done a a voice uh, in a film. So it's kind of fun to kind of throw him in. It's just so funny that they, for for the Japanese version, they cast an American to play the German, um, <laughs> which just seems so odd that they didn't just cast a German to begin with. And then it's like, well, if they already cast American, why didn't they just keep him? I mean, I love that they put Werner Herzog in, but yeah. it's just like they already had this guy's voice. Why not just keep it? The design of the thing, I think also one of the things we talked about last uh, over the last couple of weeks is just the the wonderful um real international feel of the of the artistry in this thing, the character design. Um they uh, kind of span the globe um, where you have uh, Naoko's father, who is definitely, uh, I don't know, he's, he strikes me as a, a 
typically American uh, looking face. He has a great big, thick Americanized kind of mustache, but of course he's wearing kind of his evening kimono and those wooden shoes and, and looks a little bit ridiculous to my eye. Uh, and then of course we have then the uh, Hattori, the uh, played in the English dub by Martin Short, he's the the big boss, and he ends up looking more like a cross between. Uh, um, gosh, I don't, I, I can't think of the character name. The it's uh, uh, maybe a Buster Keaton kind of a Charlie Chaplin hmm. look, uh, sort of European. But who's the short guy with the bull head? Maybe I'm thinking of a character in Dick Tracy. Uh, <laughs> oh, you're thinking of like uh, like Flathead. What's Flea his Ray, name? Those, Flathead yeah. Riley. Yeah, I can't think of his name. But uh, anyway, they have he has this really funny kind of uh, European look, um, lampooned European look, uh, and and wearing uh, you know quite dapper uh, clothes uh, out of uh, of the period. Um, That's funny because to me he seems more typically Japanese. Yeah, his face is Japanese, but it's just his head design and his his wear and his his you know. But his his facial design, I think you're right, is pretty Japanese. Um, his yeah, eyes yeah. in particular end up being the most sort of stereotypically anime um, for the the angry boss. Yes, and then you know we can't forget the Italian. Yes, the Italian who does look plum Italian. Right. Yeah, Caproni, uh, uh, I think, is a, a really interesting character in this film. And actually, I, I kept thinking that there was some strange... Um, I, I couldn't figure out if, if there, it was intentional, but of Na, Naoko's father had almost a Caproni-esque feel to him yes. sometimes. It's like, I wonder if they're doing that on purpose to make to somehow tie his dreams to her world. And I, you know, I, I couldn't quite, quite place that, but it was, it was definitely noticeable. Well, it was noticeable. I mean, you know, in, in one respect, it's the, um, it's Obi-Wan, um, you know, it's his Obi-Wan Kenobi character, right? It's the guy, he's, he's the guy who comes to him when he needs him the most, even though nobody else can see him. Right. Right. Uh, and, um, and, and so what we have here is this guy who's leading him through this world and giving him these designs in the dream world. And, and, uh, and then when he's in the real world, he has this sort of sensate grounding, um, grounding him to to reality and to his relationships. And those two things come together in the final dream as uh, Caproni walks him up the hill and we get to witness her kind of evaporating. Right. And she dies. And so that's uh, that's her. Um, th- to me, that was very much the 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 paternal figure uh, allowing him to witness her transition into another place. Yeah. Although I feel like she had already died. Well, OK. So that was him letting her go. Yeah. I felt like it was kind of right. Exactly. That's that's what I felt it was, because I, I feel like she dies. He's watching that final test of the plane while and... she's having that hemorrhage. Right, and uh, and she's kind of uh, left the house and is going back up to the sanatorium. And while he's watching the test, all of a sudden the wind rises and yeah. he turns and all the sound drops out and he's kind of looking around. And to me, that's like him sensing her. It's you know it's that thing that people always say, they, I could sense her soul leave yeah, or, or yeah. whatever. That's what I felt happened right there. It's kind of like her soul... Uh, blew the wind through him and kind of he knew that she had died at that point and then he connected with her in the dream again um both i mean that's kind of the final dream we see of him with his planes Mm -hmm. where we see just all of the masses of the planes up in the sky and then also her and it's 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 a almost a chance for him to acknowledge the beauty of 
of all these things in his life, right? He's got these beautiful planes that he had created and then he has her and, you know, he kind of is saying goodbye to her and saying goodbye to kind of the dream of, of what, what the, the planes, the, the, you know, the, the idea of what the planes could be in the dream and that kind of like powerful beauty that they are, um, knowing that in the real world, they're all, as he says, they all went off to fight and none of them came back. Yeah, that was pretty haunting. It was one of the most haunting visual elements of the film, although certainly not the most impressionable one for me. The biggest one for me was the earthquake that that hit uh, Tokyo and and uh, while he was on the train. That was a particularly jarring sequence around here. Well, and it's so sudden. And I yeah. think that's why, because it comes out of nowhere. You're certainly not expecting anything like that. And wham, it just hits and it just devastates everything. It really throws you for a loop. It does. The way it throws you for a loop, too. And I don't have the language to describe what is going on in the animation here, but it something changes. Do you know what I mean? It didn't feel, I mean, it obviously wasn't sort of computerized, but it it's pretty close to that same feeling i get are, are you talking specifically about the actual moment when the earthquake hits when you see the yeah the, the wave. shock wave ripple across and yeah. Uh, yeah we get a few moments like that there are a few moments where the scale gets all funky when you're flying low over the ground and suddenly the 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 way the world is rolling up underneath you starts to look a little bit funky it looks a little bit dreamlike but um but the wave in particular here i thought was was um uh, it was visually it was really beautiful and just out of character enough in the film that um that i think it it uh, man it hit us hard the other thing that i think really kind of makes me focus on that moment and it makes it really stand out is because of the sound design that Miyazaki chose to use in this film and my understanding this is something that he's been wanting to do and it's just uh, the only thing that uh, um, this was the first time that it was able he was able to make it happen but for the sound design he actually wanted to use humans making the sound effects for a lot of the things that happen here the wind the earthquake the train engine it's plane people engines. yeah plane engines it's actually people making noises into the microphone as opposed to what you would consider kind of traditional sound effects um sometimes they don't work so well uh, and i notice them every time because i'm like gosh that sounds so weird it sounds like a person making like juk, 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 or whatever mm-hmm. you know um and but sometimes it's really interesting. And the earthquake one really stands out because of the way it hits. It's not like this intense rumbly sort of sound. It's almost like this this like whoosh sort of sound. It's like the way that it hits. It's like, oh, and then it just all of a sudden hit. And and I actually really end up liking that. Uh, I, I And I find that it works in a very jarring way in that particular instance. It's also the first time I, I think we see the wind as the betrayer you know up to that point we've seen the wind in dreams we've seen the wind um you know as the accomplice the wind is the thing that helps to to lift our dreams you know or if our dreams are these giant machines that we want to soar skyward then we need the assistance of the wind to help us get there and it's always kind of a partner and in this case when the the earthquake hits and the fires begin to spread uh, we see that the wind is also um, a demon. You know, the wind is also this thing that will betray us, and it will if we're not if we're not kind 
kind and careful, it will it will turn on us and destroy, and and it will aid the other party, or or that the wind in fact has no allegiance, and that we sort of obey its its whimsy. Um, and, and so I thought that was that was really interesting. That was something that we we sort of bandied about around here as as you know for a film that is about wind, for a film that that partners wind with these designers as a key tool in their work. It is also such a dangerous. Uh, dangerous force. Well, and, and a key and a key uh, tool connecting uh, Jiro and uh, Naoko. I mean, that's that's how they meet. The wind whips his hat off, and she grabs it. Right, and that's kind of the connecting force. And like we just said, that is kind of the moment when she dies. That is that is the force that is kind of connecting the two of them together. But at the same time, it does have a very yin yang feel because. It brings them together, and also it is the it is the element that signals the end of their relationship when she dies, and and he senses it because of the wind, and just like you said, it's also that yin yang, the power of flight, but also the power of destruction. So mm-hmm. it, it it's great how it does represent really both sides of all of that. Yeah, and and uh, uh, you know I think we've we've seen him play with wind in a number of uh, a number of his films, um, but in the films that we've talked about it. He, I didn't get a. I, I don't have a real sense memory of wind in Cagliostro. Am I misremembering that? I don't think it's a big thing, but I, I feel like there are enough nature shots all throughout mm-hmm. um, all of the films where I, I you know, I, I really enjoy watching how Miyazaki um, ends up directing nature and and any still shots of just kind of you're looking at nature or beauty or even moving shots it doesn't matter but the way that he uh works it becomes very poetic and i really enjoy in this film watching how they animate like the wind rippling the grass in fields which i did notice in totoro as well and i can't remember i I do feel like there were scenes like some nice wide shots with nature and stuff in in castle of cagliostro yet i can't quite pinpoint if they had the wind animated in those or not yeah i don't think so what i remember the sense memory i have of cagliostro is really the the idea of how nature and sort of man-made structure interact and how nature you know it ends up overtaking so many of these man-made structures it's sort of that helplessness of all of us you know we're only here for a little while and look what nature will will do um, if we turn our backs and and that certainly is a connecting thread you know back to this all the way through to this film look what nature will do if you turn your back for just a second um, you know right. this is it's it's an extremely powerful force and that that is a, a central sort of theme of of totoro too is this you know this is a spirit of the woods it is big and it is powerful and it can fly and carry you and send you places on a psychedelic cat bus but um, and and ultimately it's very sweet but it's helping you deal with some very challenging lessons and and um you know look what happens when you turn your back uh you know suddenly your mom's in the hospital yeah so uh let's say just just briefly about this controversy uh we've talked a little bit about miyazaki as a pacifist you mentioned that earlier and and that ends up being the the um you know central uh, tenet of this controversy around this particular film, um, where here he is as a pacifist and uh, has made this film, um, you know, what others have said, and I'm pulling this from Wikipedia, flattering, uh, a flattering film about a man who built killing machines. I don't see why you have to blame the filmmaker 
on telling a, an interesting story. I don't get a sense from watching this film that it is a film, uh, kind of a, a pro Japanese war propaganda sort of film. You know, I don't see that here. I see very clearly these conversations between uh, Jiro and this Italian airplane designer Caproni in his dreams about kind of the power of planes and the beauty of what they can be in their dreams, yet it's not something that can really ever be achieved in reality, particularly when the powers that be want to use these as tools of war. And that's what I think is the the central message for me, too. It's that, you know, the the thesis of the film is planes are elusive, beautiful creatures that that we send sailing into the sky. And the people who make them and fly them are are beautiful, powerful creatures in their own right. And the 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 tragedy if if there is a tragedy in this film beyond the fact that there was such a, a destructive war in itself is the character tragedy that in Jiro's you know in Jiro's struggle to create such beautiful creatures of the sky he ended up selling himself uh, selling himself out i think uh, unconsciously uh, to the war machine uh, because he so deeply wanted to do this this good work, and um, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that he, he didn't know he was um, you know actively creating war machines at the time. He just was was motivated and obsessed with um, with moving these planes skyward. Yeah, and, and it's it's tricky to say how much of that really is is Miyazaki's interpretation of Jiro uh, Horikoshi, or how much of that is really in Jiro's uh, story. Uh, even reading about uh, Jiro, um, you know, it sounds like he was pretty tied to the, to the military and, and obviously the buildup toward the war. However, he opposed, from what I've read, he opposed it mostly because he saw it as futile, not necessarily because he didn't agree with war. It just seems like he felt that the U.S. was such a, a strong power that Japan never would be able to stand up to it. And and that, to me, seems like kind of his opinion as to why he felt like this was a, a foolish thing to do rather than um, pacifistic sort of opinion. Um, so, so I feel like there might be some Miyazaki spin on that, and that could be why people were attacking him. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely Miyazaki spin. And I think this gets back to your point about the, the sort of fabulism of the biopic, right? Right. This is definitely uh, Miyazaki using this guy as a tool to tell his story and make good on his agenda as a pacifist. He is using this guy and and retconning his, his life story to make him somebody who appears to be betrayed by his own obsession. I think that's a, I, that to me is abundantly clear. Right. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I enjoy what Miyazaki's doing here. I, I really think that he's making kind of a very profound film. I think it's trickier, uh, or I should say, I think it's easier for us to kind of look at this um, now, especially not looking at this back in like the 1940s or 50s and this type of or this particular story and finding so much of this and what he's saying in this film. Um, it, you know, from what I've read, most of the criticism um, has come from uh, Japanese voices uh and that seems to be kind of the primary driving force. 
people who, you know, were more connected to a lot of these things that had happened and may be more specifically um, opinionated yeah. as to these kind of, uh, I guess you could say from their perspective, falsehoods creating this um, kind of a heroic character out of somebody who did build war tools. Yeah, good or bad. He is a genuine Japanese historical figure. And, and to to do this to him, I can see how that may have uh, consequences if you're if you have more of a cultural understanding of what was right. going on there. Right. Yeah. So it it is, I mean, I think he did walk a very tricky line telling this story. Um, I think that he did make a great film, but looking at it from the, the perspective of certain people, I can see very easily how they would be offended. And, you know, I could see them saying, well, why didn't, why couldn't he just tell a story that like he told that's just fictional and it's not necessarily tied to uh japanese and uh you know their role in world war ii yeah i don't know what i think about that i i don't either i don't either but it's it's, it's i find it very interesting and i think this is just an it's an interesting debate i think that it's i don't think there is an easy answer i don't think there's um really going to be a, a perspective that is going to settle this whole thing i just think it's uh it's very interesting that this is how he chose to tell the story and i can't I can't argue that the people who f- see the problems with it are, I can't argue that they're wrong. Yeah, no, I can't either. I, you know, I think this goes, goes to one of Miyazaki's, um, you know, responses, which is, you know, children deserve to be introduced to things, to worlds that they know nothing about. And, and for much of his filmmaking career, he was doing that through uh, introducing children to his, the worlds of his dreams. But that, you know, in, in this case, we now have an example of introducing kids from a, to this world of, um, if not uh, explicitly factual, uh, uh, certainly thematically accurate uh, vision of war and and the horrors of war and what it means to truly embrace violence, uh, whether you're doing it through um, through a response to a natural disaster or you're doing it through a response to a mechanical disaster. Um, I, I think I think it ends up being a really powerful story and and and, a, and certainly a unique one. Um, in in the context of what we normally expect from animated films yes absolutely although i will say you know the uh, studio ghibli this really is a, a very interesting companion film to um the film that was released with my neighbor totoro that i mentioned last yeah. week grave of the fireflies another world war ii film told from the perspective of two children who are are left uh you know basically by themselves because their family is killed when the uh, nuclear bomb is dropped very powerful uh touching film that pairs really nicely with this one and it's it's interesting that they both come from studio ghibli what else do you have on your list I completely forgot to bring this up last week, but uh, I just can't even believe I did. But uh, Joe Hisaishi did the score for this film. Beautiful, beautiful score. I love the Italian touch that he has uh, kind of throughout the music. It just is beautiful. It works so nicely in this film. Um, And his music for Totoro was great, too. He's one of my 10 J's of the film composing, as I've mentioned before. And I, uh, I think that what he brings to the table here is 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 a perfect a perfect tone i i think that going the direction of kind of tying the italian feel to the music um 
really lends to the dream quality and kind of the power of Jiro's dreams in the film. Or do you feel better? I feel better now, now that, that you I, got him. I, I, I know him you were yes. really worried last week. I, was, I couldn't believe that. I didn't <laughs> so, I'm, so. I'm proud of you. I'm glad you made a note. <laughs> yes. Phew. <laughs> got that off my chest. Uh, anything else hot? The only other thing, last week you had mentioned that uh, Miyazaki never wanted to do a sequel. Oh, yes. Uh, Interestingly, and I didn't know this, but he actually, after the release of Ponyo, um, he wanted to do a sequel to Ponyo. He wanted to do Ponyo on the Cliff by the Sea 2, but uh, Toshio Suzuki, who he's worked with before, said, let's adapt this manga that you did. And uh, let's make that. And initially, Miyazaki's like, no, that's not something that's that kids would like. Um, and, but then, like you said, everybody convinced him that uh, that it is something that would be great to do. And, you know, that's when he said, you know, children should be exposed to this sort of thing. And um, I think that's a, a fantastic direction to go with. Um, I, As much as I enjoy Ponyo, um, I don't know if I needed a sequel to that. And I feel like I am more rewarded by having this in its existence. I agree. I'm so glad you brought that up. I read that and, it, and <laughs> I got so excited about it. I did not know that either. Let's look at that. It's a terrible name for a sequel. Well, that's what the first one's called. I know. Uh, that was a terrible actually, name, too. Adding a two yeah. to it doesn't make it any better. No, it doesn't. No, right. it doesn't. Uh, how did it do? It's a pretty recent film. It had a very big release uh, in Japan and a good one here. And yeah. it was well, very well received. I mean, it, it got an Academy Award nomination for Best Animated Feature, uh, Golden Globe. Uh, he won the award for writing in an animated feature production at the Annie Awards. Um uh, Joe Hisaishi got a Japan, uh, Japanese Academy Award for the best score. It was received really, really well, and I, you know, I think it's uh, a testament to Miyazaki and his work that doing a film like this does end up getting received so well. Um, the budget on this was definitely higher; it was thirty million dollars, um, and uh, it ended up grossing here in the U.S. Uh, about five point two million. Not huge. Um, but, you know, I think pretty strong for a uh, foreign animated film. But internationally, and from what I've read, this international number is actually just the Japanese, uh, the Japanese box office. 131,000, uh, or it was 131 million. So it did really well over in Japan. Um, that made for a total uh, adjusted profit per finished minute of about $845,000 per finished minute. Well, I think it's probably time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. And if you don't have an account already, sign up for one. And then you should start ranking our films. And uh, then we should compare. So like us and friend us and follow us. And we'll follow you back. And we'll, we'll just see what happens. All right. The wind rises. We're kind hearts and coronets. Hmm. I think uh, the wind rises for me. Yep. I'm, I'm wind rises here. All right. The wind rises, or eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Ooh, you know they they scratch this uh, similar itch. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm eternal sunshine here. Okay. Are you giving in on that one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that that sets us up, so we're not going to be we're not going to be ranking it against Totoro. No, no. Which is aren't. unfortunate because I would definitely put this above Totoro. Well, 
I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not gonna it's not gonna get there now. And you suck. <laughs> <laughs> the wind rises or sunshine. You know, on a it, it's a freshness thing. So today I would say uh wind rises, but also the next film I put on, if that's the choice, would be sunshine. I yeah, I this one, I would actually do The Wind Rises, and I think I would do it because of the third act. I, I mean, I've, I think I've worked through my issues with the third act in Sunshine, but I still will end up cringing a little bit when it rolls around. <laughs> Whereas The Wind Rises, I don't ever get as excited as I do with like the first two-thirds of Sunshine, which I just think are just wonderful sci-fi, just amazing, amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah, true. But I think The Wind Rises has a consistent bar that it's achieving pretty much through its duration. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, there you I'm, go. I'm with you. All right. The wind rises are about a boy. I am about a boy. I'll be about a boy. Okay. The wind rises or force majeure. <laughs> that was a good movie. It was. Force majeure. I definitely liked Poor it. Poor dad. <laughs> what a dummy <laughs> um oh, wow like i'm i um i might have to go force majeure really i'm wind rises here okay i'll be wind rises i'm not i mean i'm obviously i'm non-committal you're pretty yeah <laughs> you are pretty non-committal uh the wind rises or the prestige. I haven't oh, seen the that prestige. Pop in a while. Yeah, absolutely. The prestige. The wind rises or the abyss. I'm definitely oh, the, the abyss. abyss. Absolutely. The wind rises. Oh, or uh, Bong Joon Ho's mother. <laughs> oh. Not the movie. This is his actual no, mother. <laughs> this is his actual mother. <laughs> um, uh, I'm mother for sure. Yeah, I'm mother too. That was a really strong. That film. was great. That leaves us at number 72 out of 211. That's pretty, pretty, good. pretty good. Yeah, I definitely think it's pretty good. Wow, where was Eternal Sunshine? Uh, Eternal Sunshine is 53. So you're pretty okay, good yeah. on your guess yeah, there. Not bad. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, I feel good about that ranking, actually. I, that feels like a, a good place for it, given the kinds of movies that we have in that top 100. Uh, and I hope, I really hope, I think this, I hope this, uh, speaking of scratching an itch, I hope this one comes back and, and helps uh, the good Ben Lott uh, uh, with more of a narrative structure. and yeah, less connecting of a, a little bit more with you. Yeah, less of a requirement to have a kid's eyes right. uh, to watch these with. And I don't mean to actually take, a child's eyes. No, no, that Sounds would be very that would strange. Be probably problematic uh, for him no, with the legal is, system. Yes. Well, you know. Yes. Uh, what's your uh, letterboxed? Uh, my letterboxed, and this one I think is three and a half. Three and a half stars out of five. Oh, no, that's too low. <laughs> I'm dead. This is this is a solid four star movie for me. Okay, that's a good ranking. Yeah. No, calculate. Do your little calculus. No, it's 3.75. So it'll, it'll round up to four. <laughs> well, you did that awfully fast, Mr. Showoff Mathematician. <laughs> oh, look. <laughs> Mr. Leibniz is in the building. Uh, all right, where do we go from here? We're changing series. Actually, we've got a, we've got a little break. 
We do. We're going to be uh, doing our sixth of our listeners' choice episodes. Uh, this is Diego Luis Contreras's episode of uh, Luis Buñuel's uh, Viridiana. Oh, I'm excited for this. Have you you haven't seen it? I haven't seen it. I haven't watched it yet. I'm going to hopefully be catching it real soon here, and uh, I definitely look forward to seeing it. I have seen very few of Buñuel's films. Uh, just a couple of his early shorts, really, and um, so you know, I'm I'm excited to see it. I'm, I will say I'm a little nervous. You know, surrealism isn't always my thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know how surreal this one is going to be, but I uh, I'm definitely uh, wanting to give it a chance and check it out because I really have heard nothing but good things uh, about this film, except from uh, the Catholic Church that I believe banned this. Film. <laughs> except. <laughs> Except for them. <laughs> well, I am excited about it too. I'm with you. Um, I, surreal's, uh, surrealism is not usually my bag, but uh, but I just love that this was recommended for us, and I'm excited to see what we come up with. Uh, who knows what, <laughs> what we'll come up with, and uh, and take it from there. So that's it. Absolutely. I'm done. I gotta go to bed. All right. I'm going to go sneak into my kids' rooms and uh, make some airplane noises with my uh, with my mouth and see if uh, I can get them to have some fanciful dreams of flying. Offensive and dull insult to injury. Uh, as an Movie in- tone news. <laughs> as an intense, an intense Miyazaki lover. I have to say this film is a major disappointment in many ways. Miyazaki's idolatry of a weapon designer in a war of aggression and genocide Japan has yet to apologize for is gross. The whitewashing continues as Jiro visits the Luftwaffe and not a single swastika can be seen. There is some mention of people being pulled from their homes in Germany, but they are not named. Miyazaki's unusually strong and amazing female characters are completely absent, with Jiro's wife laying around sick and passive the entire movie while the boys have adventures. Worst of all, though, is that this film is boring. It was hard for me to be offended by it as I was stifling yawn after yawn. It's long and it's pointless. Jiro is just just not an interesting guy. And watching him struggle with one failed design after another offers little high drama. The only beauty in it is seeing pre-war Japan in such pre-industrial shambles, pulling Jiro's designs onto the tarmac with Buffalo and marveling at how they could become such an unbelievable power so quickly. Okay. I like that last point. I I do. Swastikas, really. (laughs) I think we may have seen different movies. Well, mine by Martina says content not suitable for anyone, but animation is brilliant. One star. Okay, don't get me started. The film can this film condoned a woman on her deathbed unable to breathe, and she is portrayed as a charming individual who is easygoing as her brainless, awful, neglectful, selfish husband asks her if he can smoke. And as she is dying, unable to breathe, and more than once, I'm sorry, but this movie needs to be banned for content. It's too bad because the animation is brilliant. We didn't bring up the smoking. We didn't bring up the smoking. There is a ton of smoking in this movie. There is a lot of smoking. Oh my goodness, a ton of smoking. 
I found that interesting being a movie that was made in 2000, you know, 12, 13, that, uh, that there was quite so much smoking. It definitely was a, a, a nod to the times. There was a lot of smoking in the time and there well, is still, I think a lot of smoking in across Asia. I think that it's, uh, yeah, I think it's just kind of like Mad Men. It's pointing out something that uh, that yeah. existed uh, quite a bit back then. Right. Doctors smoked. I mean, the, people didn't look at it as as harmful an activity as uh, people do now. I, I think that the more puzzling uh, comment is this film condoned a woman on her deathbed unable to breathe. Condoned? Yeah. I don't right. think means what you think it means. I don't think so either. These have been infuriating Amazon reviews, Andy. Infuriating. <laughs> Thanks for oh, nothing, dear. Amazon. Nothing. The movie we're talking about this time is The Wind Rises by Hayao Miyazaki. It was about a man who wanted to build an airplane, like the, the perfect airplane, and have it not be used for war. And his wife died. It was sad. What did you think about the movie with Jiro who made the airplanes? Awesome. Do you really do you really remember it? No. I thought that it was beautiful. After the earthquake, like there was beautiful scenes and like green grass and blue skies and dark forests. We watched a movie about a, a, a boy who dreamed of making airplanes. Remember he would have the dreams where he would meet that other guy in his dreams and they would look at all those cool airplanes with like six wings and that could carry all sorts of people that landed on the water and everything. You remember that movie? Mm-hmm. And he wanted to build those planes. You remember that? Mm-hmm. What happened in the movie? I don't know. There was this guy named um, Jiro, and he was in love with Naoko. He was um, a plain, plain and plain idea person. Plainest? A plainest? That's pretty good. Aeronautical engineer. When one boy blaked and fell into the water with no people in it. Yeah. Just the flight. You remember that part? Yeah, funny. It was funny. Yeah, all the worst stuff. I didn't really get, but it was fun to watch. His dream was about making earth flying planes, and he really wanted to, like, make planes and fly planes. So... He went to school in Japan, and then they told him to go to, yeah, another city in Japan and start working on planes. It was about a boy who had an airplane and in his dream, and he crashed into a person when he was hanging from an airplane, a bad airplane, and going to fight, fight it, and then he just fell down without just a dream. They sent him to Germany to start working on planes, and he was surprised. Cause what was he surprised about? He, he, he didn't, well, he knew a lot about planes, but he was surprised because they had never, like, actually 
let him go someplace. It was scary, and there was a lot of fire. Mm-hmm. And why are train tracks built up on hills like that? She's like, all of the train tracks were up high on a hill. He's like, Any, every time you have to get on a train, you're running uphill. It's really hard. In Humanities, I read an article, and it sounded just like what happened during the earthquake. The first one he made, they were used for fighting. Like, they were army army planes. I think he, they could be used differently. He could make one, and, like, the person who used them say, Be careful. This, this is one I made, and I don't want it to get broken. So he could, he could have said that. And it wouldn't have gotten broken. And the Italian guy, his voice is really weird. It's like me with my It's like mamma mia, like that. <laughs> Airplanes are beautiful, he said, and they they should never be used for fighting. Can you tell me the sounds that the airplanes made when they would take off? <laughs> and what would they sound like when they crashed? What did it sound like when the earthquake happened? This one was definitely the most real. Like, I think because they put real live events in there, and nothing was quite as impossible as the castle of whatever it was. And the wind rises, it was all possible like everything they did was not there's no magic the animation i think from all of his Hayao Miyazaki's films i think this was the best one castle of cagliostro and my neighbor totoro were pretty good i just didn't like in my neighbor totoro i didn't like how his belly was like all fat i think they could make it skinnier and like not as furry the one that i would want to watch the most is Totoro. Lots of action and happiness and cute little Totoros. I like watching Totoro more than this one because it's more interesting. What if all the movies, they had like little Totoros walking everywhere? <laughs> May, when she gets mad, her ponytails get... All the way to the top of her head. When the when when Judo when Judo got when Judo got m- mad, all his hair did was like boom. Their hair was kind of a character. It had a, a mind of its own. Yeah, it felt like the earthquake is real. It was a little scary, but I got through it. I liked the part in the beginning where he was dreaming about that thing, the plane that was like bird wings. That was really cool. I also liked it when he was laying on the roof with his sister. And I liked all of his dreams. And I really liked his wife. That was really a good that was a good thing to have in the movie. Why? It gave it made the movie more interesting. That his wife had this horrible disease and died in the end. That was that was really interesting. If you make something like beautiful but too beautiful it might get ruined and you'll be super sad but if you make something that was like that you 
that you care about but not that much doesn't really matter. Standing on a wing of a plane? Scary. The wind would just blow you back. If he knew what he was doing, then maybe he would have tried to convince people that they shouldn't have done it. A flying door. You don't see that every day. <laughs> you liked that line quite a bit, huh? Yeah, it was funny. Yeah. My favorite part was when Naoko left the building of her hospital. And I thought that was super brave. Like, she had a disease and she was leaving. If I, if I did that, I would get super sick. Because, like, more sick. Sponge cake. How do you stay alive? I think that this movie was targeted at kids my age or older. Because there was, like, tuberculosis and they were building airplanes, which really, I think, when I was Nick's age, didn't seem very interesting to me. Like, airplanes were just another thing that was there. And building them was like, ugh, that's really far away. And behind us. How do you make a plane fly? What happened to those people that were flying, testing the planes? They must be very brave, but, like, did they survive or something? The lesson is, like, don't make stuff too beautiful or else it'll get ruined. Yes, this movie was definitely more mature. It would take a lot of guts to do that. And so I feel, I kind of feel like, good job, you, you tried to protect your country. And also, really? Why would you do that? I would recommend The Wind Rises to other kids, because I think it was like a good animation, and it, was, it would be good for the people who liked both the all two, the, the Castle of Cagliostro and My Neighbor Totoro. I think they would really like that. The fact that they made up some of the history doesn't really change my opinion of the movie. It changed my opinion of the people who made the movie, but the movie in general was great. I liked the guy that was from Germany. He helped him, and his face looked like he had hope, and he relied on people that helped him. It was a really good, a good movie because it taught so much about people in general. I think it might be um, like a more mature movie because like one or two year olds, maybe not. But I think from three on to from three and up, I think they would really like it. You think The Wind Rises is good for, suitable for three and up? Yeah. All right. Because there's not that, there's like not as good as like other movies, like grown-up movies, mm -hmm. this isn't a grown-up movie, or and it's not a little kids movie. It's like right in the middle. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. 
and their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> 